Well, good morning, church family. Lovely to see you this morning. What a beautiful day it is outside. And for those who are joining online, it's lovely to have you online. Now, I've got one thing I must do. It's a personal thing I need to do right here and now. I know my mum. My my mum turns 88 years old today. And she'll be watching online from New Zealand. So, happy birthday, mum. I'll call you later. (laughs) So, so, um, yeah, happy birthday to my mum. Anyway, we, uh, if you're visiting uh, today, it's great to have you here. Uh, we welcome you to Pakenham Baptist Church. and We're a church who uh, loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are working our way through uh, the letter of Philippians. Uh, we're in the third part of the series in Philippians. Um, if you're a visitor and don't have one of our little journals, please help yourself to one out the front there, and you can use that for personal study. Now, just a, uh, a heads up. Uh, if you are following through on the journal, and the, particularly the uh, lessons at the back, you'll be up to lesson three. Lesson three actually covers uh, this week and next week. So you could do lesson three in two parts if you wish to. Uh, it covers two weeks' worth, just so you know. Wasn't it a great hymn we sung previously? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. As we had uh, the scripture read to us today, you could see that pulsing through the heart of the account of Paul. And we'll dive a little bit more into that uh, this morning. You know, it's interesting because as we go to this section in Philippians from chapter 1, verse 12 through to probably we'll get through to about verse 18 today. Paul really wants his readers, those saints at Philippi, to know uh, that don't be surprised by the results of his circumstance. Now, as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, we know that he is chained to the imperial guard. We get that right in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. I hold you in my heart, talking about Philippians, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. And here in chapter 1, verse 13, he, he says the same thing, that his imprisonment is for Christ. So he's chained to a Roman soldier every hour of every day. He's confined and he's incarcerated uh, to some living quarters in the middle of Rome. And just to add insult to injury, he has to pay the rent on those living quarters. Can you see the irony in that? You're incarcerated, but you've got to also pay to be incarcerated. (laughs) And you've got to... uh, uh, And you're chained there. So what's happened to Paul on the way to Rome? If you want to know what's happened to Paul on the way to Rome, you look through the book of Acts and you see... His final journey, as outlined from about Acts 22 onwards. 
He's endured an extended imprisonment in Caesarea prior to arriving in Rome. He's overcome an arduous journey uh, to Rome. And this, this journey included a, a massive storm, a shipwreck, and he was marooned on the island of Malta. And to make things even just a little bit more uh, interesting, he got bitten by a venomous snake and uh, was miraculously healed. And finally, now he arrives in Rome, he's chained to an imperial guard. And this would have been, the guard would change, okay? So you wouldn't have the same person guarding you for the, you know, we, we read a little bit later that he was there for two years. So part of the imperial guardmanship, he'd have a different person maybe on an eight-hour, 12-hour shift. I, I'm not quite sure what the shift arrangements were in Rome in those days. But um, he would have multiple guards, but he'd always be chained. He was in Rome for the purpose of appealing to Caesar. Uh, because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had made accusations against him. And they wanted his head off, basically. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, he had rights to appeal to Caesar. You know, he was a former Jewish rabbi, but he was born a Roman citizen in Tarsus. And as we read through Acts from the time of Paul's conversion, you know, the wonderful Damascus Road experience. From that time, he continually and never stops proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And it's interesting because I think we see that this particular imprisonment the circumstance is part of God's sovereign plan. Part of a sovereign plan, and the circumstance has been designed to advance the gospel. And Paul's attitude is that his imprisonment is for Christ. That in itself is an amazing lesson for us all, isn't it? It's an amazing lesson if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. We all have different circumstances in life. Do we consider those circumstances as an opportunity to testify to the goodness of God and saving knowledge through the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we take the other route and become entrapped by those circumstances and become self-centred and myopic and forget to realise that God has a sovereign plan over our lives and that throughout that we can testify to his goodness, testify to his grace, testify to the fact that he has saved a sinner. And that's the example we see here with Paul very clearly. I don't know what it's like to be shipwrecked. I don't know what it's like to be bitten by a snake. 
I don't know what it's like to be chained to a guard 24-7. But I do see that Paul sees that as a part of advancing the gospel. You know, we might be, we could be a little bit frivolous about this. Well, maybe you're chained to your desk at work 24-7. But that's a place where you can actually advance the gospel. You may be chained in your home to your little ones running around all over the place. It's a place that you can Teach and advance the gospel to those that are in your sphere of influence, i.e. your children. That's what Deuteronomy talks about. As they're walking, as they're growing, as they're sleeping, as they're going to bed, teach them about the things of the Lord. It's part of advancing the gospel. And there are two results. As we read here in Philippians 112 through 13, two results that Paul highlights from his imprisonment. He knows he's there to serve the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the proclamation of Jesus. And the two results are this that the whole imperial guard know that Paul's imprisonment is for Christ. All his captives know that he's there for the sake of Jesus. So outsiders know why Paul is imprisoned. He turns it and he says, this is why I'm in prison. That's the first result. And the second result is that this example of Paul's boldness and advancing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus, even though his circumstances aren't the best, gives confidence to others. See that? Gives confidence to others to speak the word of God without fear. So the two results are outsiders know why Paul is imprisoned and believers are emboldened by his imprisonment. They're emboldened by his example. And they become bold to share the good news. It's a bit like last Sunday, right? We heard from Mark Hamilton and, and the wonderful work that's happening in Belarus and Lithuania. We hear about how those, that team up there are impacting young people for Jesus and, and sharing the gospel, advancing the gospel. Did that encourage you? I hope it did. I hope the Spirit of God used that to encourage you and to enliven you to be more bold in your own witness. We look at others, and that's why it's so wonderful to share stories amongst ourselves about the opportunities we have to talk about Jesus to others. It becomes a real catalyst for uh, a believing community, right? To go out with a greater boldness. Now, we, we read Acts, and I want you to grab your Bibles and we'll go into Acts because I think the portion in Acts, Acts 28, is really helpful uh, to unpack these two principles. 
So let's, uh, let's work through this portion together. See, both of these results, outsiders knowing that Paul's imprisonment is for Christ and believers being emboldened to um, share Christ, are seen in the final chapter of Acts. First part of what was read, uh, verses 16 to 22, tells us that after three days uh, after arriving in Rome, Paul uh, calls for the Rome's Jewish leaders. Okay, he says, okay, I want those Jewish leaders here. I want to chat to them. He took this initiative uh, with his leaders because one of his goals was to pretty much forestall any opposition or antagonism that might have followed him from other places. And we see that as we read through this narrative, right? He, um, he asked the question, well, have you heard about anything or have you, have you received any reports about me? And they say no. That was only one of the goals. The greater goal and purpose we see in verse 20. Verse 20 of uh, Acts 28 says this, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. It's because of the hope of Israel, as he addresses these Jewish leaders, I am imprisoned. I'm incarcerated. And what he really is wanting to do as we see this unfold in in, in Acts chapter 28 is that um, he wants to preach the gospel to these Jews first before embarking upon a wider ministry. You see, Paul was a figure of great importance, right, in the Christian movement. A rabbi who had turned to Christ, one who was accused of murdering and persecuting Christians, miraculously saved, and now is the voice of Christianity. And uh, by him arriving in, jo- in Rome, it must have caused some, some form of concern for the Jewish leaders there. So Paul was seeking a way to reach the substantial number of Jews in the city. It's estimated there's about uh, between, I think it's 20 to 50,000 Jews in Rome at the time. You know, Rome was a large city. And um, even though he pleads his case, he wants to speak with these leaders because his imprisonment is because of the hope of Israel. Now, I think you would expect Paul to say something different here. I would have. You could use another reason, like, uh, here I'm Paul, I'm part of the sect called The Way. So if you read through Acts, you'll see that's the way Christianity is explained. Or he could have just said, look, I'm a Christian. Or he could have said, look, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But in this context, he uses a Jewish term 
to describe his purpose, the hope of Israel. This is the one and only time in the New Testament this phrase is used. So why would he use this phrase? Why would he use this title? And how would that have been understood by his audience? These Jewish leaders that were there, how would they have understood what the hope of Israel is? I'm glad you asked the question. Because we're going to have a look at this. See, the only other time that this um, phrase is used in Scripture is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14.8 and 17.3. So if you have your Bibles, let's just uh, turn back to Jeremiah 14. And uh, let's discover what these Jewish leaders understood by this term. Because they would have understood it, right? Jewish leaders are saturated in Old Testament scripture. Absolutely saturated. It's just like me saying to you, um, for God so loved the world. Right? If I say that phrase, I would hope that all of you identify where that is in God's word. Right? You would know it's John 3.16. And you'd know the context of that. In the same way, when Paul says the hope of Israel, that phrase is built in a context that the Jewish leaders would have understood. You get that? They would immediately identify with it. In the same way, if I said the Lord is my shepherd, we all identify immediately to Psalm 23. And so would our Jewish brothers and sisters. So, the hope of Israel. Now, Jeremiah, he, he is a prophet of the Old Testament, and he's a bit of a doom and gloom type prophet, right? He comes out and he, he, he's, he's got God's message to be shared with a nation who's in sin and rebellion. And chapter 14 is no different, because chapter 14, God announces judgment through Jeremiah to Judah, the nation. And the tool for God's judgment, as you see in the first part of Chapter 14 is a drought. And as you read through verses 1 through uh, 6, you'll see these things that stand out. The people have no water, no rain, no grass, no vegetation. Severe drought. And that's God's using that to judge the nation because of their sin and rebellion. And the people cry out to God. Verse 7 of chapter 14, Though our iniquities testify against us, okay, though our sin is against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, O you, hope of Israel, its saviour in time of trouble. Okay, so that's the context here. And it's interesting, if you read further through, even though the people did cry out, their cry was not a genuine cry of repentance. Because God answers and he says, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to restore you. Because you have not restrained yourself from sin and you have not accepted the Lord. 
And I, the Lord God says, I'll remember your iniquity and it will be punished. So here, the hope of Israel is understood as a character trait of God. People cried out to God. And the trait was described as he is saviour and one who helps in the time of trouble. So let's go back to Paul. Acts 28. I'm here, I'm in chains because of the hope of Israel. Many of these Jewish leaders would think about this context. Hope of Israel. He's the saviour in time of trouble. And then we can move on and look at the second occurrence in chapter 17 of Jeremiah. And this is very similar to chapter 14 of Jeremiah. Similar context. And God is pronouncing curses upon Judah. Let's read it. Read the first four verses. They're kind of helpful with the context. Jeremiah 17, 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on every high hill, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall... Loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So what is God's charge against these people here? What is the sin that he's really choning in on? Well, firstly, we see that the sin is deep-seated within their hearts. Verse 1. It's a heart issue. And it's seen in the experience of them worshipping other gods. Which was an absolute no-no, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2 to 4, Moses instructs and warns the people as they go into the land not to worship other gods. He actually says this, Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 to 4, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. <laughs> See how that is stated in Jeremiah 17 too. While their children remember the altars and their asherim, which is worship of Baal in high places, beside every green tree on, on every high hill. Direct relation to Deuteronomy 2. He continues, verse 3 of uh, Deuteronomy 12. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord, your God, in that way. The direct command to them, as you go in and, and clean out the land, Get rid of all that idol worship and worship God alone. Don't have God in a little bit of Baal. 
Don't be syncretinistic. That's what they call syncretinism, where there are many ways to God and you start worshipping other things. God is exclusive in his right for worship for his glory. Don't ever forget that. And then in the start of Jeremiah 2, which helps with the context of Jeremiah 17, we read how their sin is just horrendous. Jeremiah 2 verse 11, the rhetorical question is asked, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Down in verse 19. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that this is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, and under every green place, you bowed down like a whore. That's the context of Jeremiah 17. You see, folks, sin is a serious issue. And God is a righteous judge. And because God is holy... Sin has to be judged. And I'm just so thankful that sin's judgment has been completed in Christ. The judgment of sin is no longer for those who have placed their faith in Christ. For those whose hearts are not hardened. For those who don't chase after idolatry and forsake the claims of Christ. Anyway, I digress a little bit. So in Jeremiah 17, after pronouncing the issue of sin... He describes a man who is cursed and a man who is blessed. Very much like Psalm 1, actually. If you read through from uh, verse 5 through to verse 8. And then in verse 12, we come to this statement. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So this is almost like a corporate praise that's going on. O Lord the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for you have forsaken the Lord, the fountain 
of living water. So how is the term, the Lord, the hope of Israel, understood in this context? Well, the Lord, the hope of Israel, is a fountain of living water and a righteous judge. So we've got these two concepts running through, right? The Lord, of the, the, Lord the hope of Israel is a saviour and one who helps in time of trouble, and he is the fountain of living water, and he is the righteous judge. This is how the, the Jewish leaders would have um, considered what Paul was saying. See, his leaders associate this title with God. Get that nugget in there. A saviour, founder of living water, and his righteous judge. You know what Paul does? And this is absolutely incredible and marvellous. Paul associates this title, the hope of Israel, and communicates this with the Jewish leaders that the hope of Israel is one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Saviour. Three, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who provides living water. And four, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will return to judge the living and the dead. The title, Hope of Israel, has now shifted to the work and person of Christ. And this would have been an anathema to the Jewish leaders. All right? Because as soon as you start declaring that who they see the, the God of Israel as God who is Saviour and God who is the one that helps in time of trouble, and you apply that to Jesus, your claim of divinity and deity straight up. And that would have been a difficult proposition. So you see a bit of Paul's evangelistic strategy here, right? He grabs a well-known phrase from the Old Testament, confronts the Jewish leaders with it, and talks about the fulfilment of this phrase, that the real hope of Israel is Christ and Christ alone. So what sort of things can you and I do in this postmodern, post-Christian world? What are the things that uh, we can do to engage the agnostic and the sceptic and the atheist? What is the common ground that we can use to engage in a conversation about Jesus. As you know and I know, as we, as we start this conversation, there is just no knowledge of God, right? I would encourage you, one of the best places to start is creation. Romans 1 tells us this fact and this truth 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, that's to all people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's a place to start. How are you made? You look around the earth. Psalms tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of the hands. Day after day they pause full speech. Night after night they display knowledge. If you've got an agnostic, an atheist or a sceptic, that's the place to start. Creation. Then talk about fall, because once you understand you are a created being in the image of God, that you have a soul and an internal aspect to you, then there's an issue about what happens to the soul once you die. You see, this is how dangerous evolution has been across this world for the last 300 years. Because it dispels all that. There is no soul, there is no God, there is no eternity. You've come from the sludge, you've come from the mud, and now you're formed into this glorious human being. No, no. God breathed into you and created man and woman in his own image. In the Imago day, you have a part of you that is eternal creation. Then you need to explain the fall, what's happened to the perfect creation. Sin entered the world through disobedience. So therefore, just as one man sinned, all have sinned. So we're all under the judgment of sin. How do we know that? Because we all die. Okay? The wages of sin is death. Simple, right? Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How do we know we're under the judgment of sin? We all pass from this earth into the afterlife. And then, once you've got those two things established, you can actually start talking about the solution, right? The solution that death has been conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That sin has been dealt with. Because Jesus has paid the price as a ransom for many. Just a little note there for you to consider. The next part of Acts, um, we see that Paul testifies to the kingdom of God. He does so because there's another appointed day where they meet and greater number of people come to listen. And it's like an extended meeting from morning to night. I thought we should try that at Packenham Baptist. Shall we have an extended meeting from morning to night? Be fun, wouldn't it? We might stop for a cup of tea occasionally. But, you know, they had an extended meeting here from morning to night. And Paul presents the gospel. And he does so by using the Old Testament. And not just uh, using the law and the prophets from the Old Testament, he presents Christ. I wonder if he used Isaiah 53, like Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch. Perhaps that's one of the texts he used. And then we have a standard response of unbelief and belief. Some were convinced, some 
had disbelief. And when the disbelief came, Paul issues a warning out of Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. This is the a part of what uh, we had in communion focus this morning. The great portion of Isaiah 6 is about the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. And then straight after that vision that Isaiah receives, he, uh, he receives his commission. And God highlights to Isaiah the waywardness of his people, their lack of hearing, their lack of seeing, their dull hearts, their heavy ears and their blind eyes. And this is all seen in this quote, right? In uh, Acts 28, verse 26 and 27. Uh, Indeed, they see but do not perceive. They hear but never understand. Their heart has grown dull. Their eyes can barely hear and their eyes have been closed. But then, so he he looks at those who are disbelieving Jews and he says, this is what's happening to you. Your unbelief is driving you away from the grace of God. But there's hope even in this quote, the last four lines, lest you should see with your eyes and hear with your ears and understand with their heart and turn and I will heal them. Turn means repent. If they see, hear, understand in their heart and turn, repent, they will be healed. And that's the hope for everyone, right? Not just for the Jewish audience that's here. It's a, the hope for all who hear the good news of Jesus. And he rounds it off, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation, the salvation which is referred to at the back end of this quote in Isaiah, that you should hear with your eyes and see with your ears, and no, see with your eyes and hear with your ears, and understand with your heart and turn that salvation of God will be there. But just be reminded here that this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will Listen. And then Paul, in this account in Acts 28, in the last two verses, he proclaims the kingdom of God and teaching about Lord Jesus Christ for the next two years. So anyone who comes to him, he, he welcomed all to him, and he continually be proclaiming the gospel. And he proclaimed with boldness and without hindrance. I love those two terms. And maybe that's a prayer for us. Lord, give us boldness. Help us to be unhindered. Help us not to be tongue-tied when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus. Because we all become tongue-tied, right? We all sometimes become embarrassed. Let's have the boldness to proclaim. And that's what happens if you go back to Philippians 1.14 as the second result. We've seen the picture of his imprisonment in Acts 28 and we go back here and we see that others take great courage from Paul's chains. 
increase their confidence and their confidence comes from the Lord. Please note that. Not from a man or a person. Their confidence to proclaim comes from the Lord. And uh, they speak the word without fear. I'm going to leave it here today because I think this is a great place to leave it. It's my heart for us here at Pakenham Baptist Church that we have the boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Part of that is to understand the gospel. Right? Understand that creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We will over time will run classes around understanding the gospel. One of the second things we can do as a church, we can be praying for those we come in contact with. I really encourage you in your journals, put a prayer list in there of people you can be praying for so that you can be involved in advancing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. Pray in your families. Pray individually. Get a prayer partner and pray for people. It must become a church that is seen to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we come to you as a people at times who are mute, who are timid, who are at times just scared to, to share the truth of the gospel with those around about us. Father, we pray uh, that you accept um, our repentance of, of these things and we ask that you will embolden us. You will give us opportunity, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our work situations, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our retirement villages. Give us boldness, Lord, to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Father, help the gospel to impact our lives in such a way that it becomes infectious for us to share. Help us to, to draw into the deep truths of this wonderful gospel message. That we were sinners separated from your holiness and that through the precious sacrifice of your Son, who's taken on our sin, who's appeased your wrath, and granted us your righteousness, his righteousness. Help that message to just permeate our every, everyday being so that we share and proclaim. 
Father, we understand we're all a work in progress and transformation at times is uh, something that takes time. But Father, we pray that we will continue to be under the transforming power of your spirit in this way. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.